Yeah, I see some faces that I haven't seen in uh, a few weeks, and it's good to see some visitors here with us today. I, I know that so often uh, towards the end of the year in particular with the holidays, we get out of our routine, we're traveling a good bit, but uh, now particularly in this next week as we sort of return to normalcy, I, I'm glad that you've decided to be here and to be with us and to make this a, a part of your routine in this new year, and I hope and I pray that you continue to do that and make it a priority. We didn't collaborate on this at all, but I'm really glad that Shannon just happened to sing that hymn right before our sermon, farther along, because I think there's probably no song in all of our song books that's more appropriate to our lesson this morning. Most of us here probably are familiar with the story of Job. He was the wealthiest man in all of the East. He had camels. He had donkeys. He had a household full of children. He had a number of servants. He was immensely blessed. Beyond that, the Scripture tells us that he was a just man, a righteous man. He was perfect and upright. He feared God, and he turned away from evil. And that made him a target of Satan. He wanted to see if Job would continue to remain so faithful if all of that that he had was taken away from him. And so in a flash, Job lost it all. His flocks, his cattle, even his children. Eventually, Job himself was afflicted with a a gruesome disease that affected his body in in a number of terrible ways. But throughout all of this, Job didn't sin. He continued to be faithful to God. But he did question God. And that questioning takes up much of the rest of the book. But a good example is found in our text that was read a few moments ago. There in Job chapter 7, he laments his condition, all of these terrible things that have happened to him. And then he says, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Now, none of us here this morning has been afflicted quite like Job. But I imagine that each of us has probably experienced enough of the battles and the burdens and the heartaches of life that we can at least identify with this feeling. There are times when we all want to cry out just like Job did. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? What am I being punished for? Those are instinctive questions. Job and his friends thought that everything revolved around this maxim, this proverb, that you sow what you reap. You reap what you sow. I said it backwards. You reap what you sow. That is, if you sow good seed, you'll reap a good harvest. If you sow bad seed, you'll reap a bad harvest. 
So if you sow seeds of sin and of bitterness and of hatred and of disobedience, well, then eventually you'll reap the consequences of that. But just like all the proverbial statements that we find in Scripture, that, while generally true, isn't without exception. Job had committed no sin, at least no great sin that was commensurate with his suffering. And yet, look at how he suffered. So why does this happen to him? Those are the questions that we ask. What if we haven't sown those kinds of seeds and yet these tragic consequences still enter our lives? What if we find ourselves bearing burdens that we don't understand, burdens that we feel completely helpless to be able to bear? Those are the moments when we cry out like Job, why, God? Why is this happening to me? Do you even care about me? Are you even there? Does it do any good to pray? Does it do any good to serve God at all? These are the types of questions that pile up in moments like this. And what they boil down to is that question that all of us have asked, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a question that many have asked throughout history, and there have been many attempts to answer it. You can find people today who will give you quick and easy answers. Eastern religions, for the most part, will tell you that you're in a cycle of reincarnation and that you're being punished in this life for some sin you committed in a previous life. In fact, they'll tell you you're probably lucky to be born as a human at all. You could have been born as something worse. The Muslim will tell you that it's Allah's will, and you must submit to it and accept it without question. Some people react to tragedies in their lives by saying that it disproves the existence of God entirely, that God cannot possibly be all-powerful and all-loving and yet allow suffering in this world. So at the least, even if God exists, well, he's not who we thought. And of course, this question or this idea when bad things happen to good people, this is most famously the title of a book by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And his answer is to take one of the horns of that dilemma, God is not all-powerful or God is not all-loving, and he says essentially that, well, God wants to help you, he wants to ease your suffering, but he can't. So his answer essentially is that God is not all-powerful. But we ought to understand that, and we ought to love God anyway because he's there suffering right alongside us. It's an interesting sort of twist. Now, we're in the position of forgiving God. Obviously, I don't think that any of those answers are right. I don't think that they're scriptural. In Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, we have this picture of God being praised. And it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God is holy and God is amazing. 
God is perfectly just. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. And I trust, because you're here today, that you believe that too. But when we recognize that, well, then we start to look at ourselves and we realize just how little we know by comparison. What can we possibly know compared to that all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God? We can't always tell what's good and what's best. Think of it this way. If I asked you right now, and think about this question. What would a good world look like to you? You're in charge of making the world perfect. Let's say you can make a list and give it to God of all the things you want in this perfect world and a list of all the things that you don't want. What would your list be? Well, I suppose for all of us, no death. Yeah, that that one goes without saying. No pain, no sorrow, sure. No debt, maybe. Perfect temperature. But you see, once we got past those handful of things that we could all agree on, we would find a number of divergences on what we think a perfect world is like. I tell you right now, we couldn't even all agree on a perfect temperature. It's supposed to be, what, 68, 69 degrees for a high today? I guarantee you that there are some people out there who think that's too cold. There's at least one person here who'd be fine with dropping it another 20, 30 degrees. That's me. Maybe there are some others who like winter out there. I don't know. We couldn't even agree on that. And on a more serious note, I look at the political animosity that exists in our country. There are some people who in their heart of hearts think that things ought to be one way and they think that that's what's right and what's virtuous. And there are other people who are just as convinced that that one way is evil, it's wicked, it's destructive, and vice versa. Those are honest disagreements. But the point is, we can't always agree on what's best, on what's good. That's because we don't actually know what's best. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament provides us with a great illustration of that. It begins in Genesis chapter 37. Most of us remember this story. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and they tell his father that he's dead. That's bad. Then Joseph finds himself working as a slave down in Egypt. That's bad. Then Joseph is falsely accused of attempting to rape his master's wife. That's bad. Then Joseph finds himself languishing in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. That's bad. And then his father is at home grieving because he thinks his son is dead. That's bad. It's all bad. Until one day, Joseph suddenly finds himself elevated to the number two man in all of Egypt. There's a famine in the land, and he's in charge of dishing out grain to hungry people who come there seeking assistance, including his family. You remember what Joseph says to his brothers close to the end of the story? It's in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Years later, he speaks to his brothers. He says, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good. There's the important point. If we don't know what's best, who does? Who really knows what's good and what's bad? We ask these questions because we value our lives. Well, who even tells us that life is worth living, that we should ask these questions in the first place? Where do we go to find the answers to these questions? You see, as we start to pile these questions up, we realize that the fundamental question isn't really why do bad things happen, it's what's the purpose of life? What's the point? Why do I get out of bed every day? Why do I go to work? Why do I pay my bills? Why do I care about my family? What's the purpose of life, but more particularly, personalize it? Apply it to yourself. What is the purpose of my life? You see, if you can determine what your life is all about and where you're headed, the direction that you're going, understand what needs to happen along the way, then you have a purpose to your life. <clears throat> but if you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what the significance of all of it is, well, then it seems like life doesn't have very much point. It seems to be virtually meaningless. There's an old Roman proverb from the philosopher Seneca. If a person does not know to what port he's steering, no wind is favorable to him. But if you know where you're going, you can catch the wind in your sails, as it were. And then not even the storm can divert you from that path. So if you were to state a goal, a purpose for your life this morning, what would it be? I think we know what most of the people in our society would say. Something like wealth, prestige, power. So maybe a better question for those of us who are here in this assembly today is what is God's purpose for my life? In the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, the larger context, we have here a, a vision of God saving his people. He's gathering them all up. And he speaks some very important words in verse number 6. God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is a picture of God gathering his family. And if we are his family, if we're called by his name, then we have here our purpose, the reason he made us. It's to glorify God. I created them for my glory, he says. It's to reflect his presence on this earth. It's to represent him with our lives. If we realize that, 
then we see that it has a number of implications for how we live. That should change our attitudes. It should change our actions. First of all, if my purpose is to glorify God, if we're part of his family, if we're called by his name, we're his people. That's the larger context here of the chapter. We've been redeemed. That means our life is precious. It's valuable. We talked last week in our lesson about how it's a finite resource. Our life is here today and it's gone tomorrow. That means we need to live it to the utmost to glorify God. We can't squander that. Your life is worth something. Secondly, if our purpose is to glorify God, then we need to be of service to others. You remember that Jesus once said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But the second commandment, near to it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I need to be doing. I need to be concerned about my neighbor. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, about the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Paul says, you've received comfort, you've received strength from God. Take that now and pass it on to others. Comfort them. Look for ways that you can serve them. So to use that analogy of sailing again, as I make my way to my final port, God wants me to touch someone here and there and there all along the way. Maybe it's just sharing some words of comfort with them. Maybe it's to help dry some tears. Maybe it's to help bind up the broken pieces of their lives. Maybe it's just to speak the word of the Lord to them in some way. Maybe it's simply to cry with them and to pray with them. You see, God's purpose in my life is to represent him, to reflect him, and that means I need to touch others and to reach out to others for him. And that's not my purpose because I'm the preacher. That's your purpose too. That's all of our purposes. Because we're created to glorify him, to represent him, to reflect him as his people. The final thing we need to note here is that we're living not by explanations, but by promises. We begin asking, why, God? Why did things happen? That's the question that Job asked. Why? He challenges God. You need to come down here. You need to explain yourself to me. You know, poor old Job never does get an answer for the why. We're reading the book. We know the why. Job never learns why. God comes down, and he challenges Job in response. And he says, who are you to question me, Job? You think you're so smart, and he gives them a lot of questions. It's essentially the theme we've been talking about this morning. And what Job realizes is that the only solution is to trust God, no matter what. 
even in the midst of that questioning, to hold on to him all the tighter. You can read all about Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't know what it was, but it's something that afflicted him terribly. It caused him a great deal of physical pain. Three times, Paul says, he pleaded with God to take it away. The only answer Paul received is, my grace is sufficient for you. Maybe farther along we'll understand more all about this. But God's promise in the here and now is to be with us and to help us to overcome these things. Not to be victims, but to be victors through his power. Not to be slaves of pain and of suffering, but to master them through trust and faith in him. Robert Reed has cerebral palsy. His feet and his hands are twisted and they're useless. He can't do many of the things that we just take for granted. He can't comb his hair or brush his teeth. He can't dress himself or button his shirt. Can't even feed himself. But that didn't stop him from graduating from high school, from going on to Abilene Christian and graduating with a degree in Latin. Years later, he went back and got a master's degree. It didn't stop him from teaching at a junior college in St. Louis or from being a missionary in a number of foreign countries. Finally, in 1972, he settled in Lisbon, Portugal. Robert Reed found a fellow who would rent him out, a ground floor room. He found a restaurant that would feed him after the daily rush was over. He found a tutor who'd help him learn Portuguese because he went not even knowing the language. And every day he wheeled himself out to a park, passing out Christian literature to people. Within six years, he had led 70 people to Christ, including the one who became his wife, Rosa. By the time he retired from full-time mission work in 1993, he was responsible for the baptisms of almost 200 people and establishing a number of local churches. All that's from a man who can barely talk. His voice sounds like a dying cassette player. Robert Reed could have become bitter. He could have complained. He could have asked, why, God? Why is this happening to me? But instead, and this is quoting from his website, Robert finds his cerebral palsy a great way to meet people and to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. His passion is speaking to others about the blessings God has brought into his life and showing the ways that he can take our weaknesses and transform them into tools for his kingdom. See, we have a choice. We can wallow in pain and in suffering. Whatever our circumstances are, we can feel sorry for ourselves. Or we can choose to get up 
to glorify God with our lives and through his strength and with the promise that he's given us, we can face life with courage and strength. Choose to live for him. Maybe you're here this morning. You found your life to be without purpose. You're just floating along. I want to invite you to find purpose this morning. In particular, find his purpose for your life. Put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried in the waters of baptism and have your sins washed away. Be added to his people, those people that he talks about gathering up from all the corners of the earth. Live your life to glorify him the way that he created you to be. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you've been living for your own purpose rather than for his. You need to make changes in a public way today. Whatever your particular need may be, we invite you to come now while we stand and while we sing.